All right, let's talk about your 48-year-old lady. This is a woman who was diagnosed back in 2002. She had a multifocal invasive cancer with the largest focus being 1.8. She had other lesions. She had two or five sentinel nodes with CK positive cells, ER six out of eight, PR four out of eight, and the key 67 was 30%. She had a bilateral mastectomy. She got four cycles of AC and was put on tamoxifen for five years. In 2011, she was seen by a gynecologist and just basically had a routine chest x-ray, was totally asymptomatic, and was found to have a right lung mass that was about three plus centimeters and a smaller right lung mass as well. Lung biopsy was positive for metastatic cells, ERPR positive, HER2 negative. She does have type 2 diabetes. She has some other medical issues. She had an ovarian cystectomy in the past. So when she came in with the metastatic disease, she was still menstruating, so we put her on Luprolide, and I actually put her back on tamoxifen, and she did well for about a year and a quarter, and then there was some progression in this lung lesion, and subsequently she's been on letrozole and most recently fulvestrin. As you go back over time looking at her lung lesion, the smaller of the two lesions that was first noted in 2011 has essentially gone away. It went away with the tamoxifen and stayed away. The larger lesion has kind of waxed and waned. It goes down, it goes up a little bit, it goes down, and now it's beginning to grow again. We've not seen any definitive metastatic disease anyplace else. There's been a question of some transient nodules on the other side, but they've never been persistent or grown. So the questions come up whether we should do something locally to treat this larger lesion that is still present. When she was still on the tamoxifen and had exhibited a clinical response, I sent her to a surgeon just for an opinion at that point. And the surgeon was reluctant to proceed with surgery for a couple of reasons. First of all, there was evidence of clinical response, so he felt that we should continue our systemic therapy. Secondly, she had had bilateral mastectomy with implants so that the surgical approach would be difficult. Thirdly, it was adjacent to the pericardium. And fourthly, it may cross the fissure. So he was not enthusiastic about doing surgery. So we put it aside. We've been through the other systemic therapy, as I noted, but on the fulvestrant, this has been slowly growing. And so I represented her at our lung cancer conference where we talked about her metastatic disease. And the original surgeon still was a little reluctant to proceed, but another surgeon thought that he would potentially go in and be able to resect this. We talked a little bit about using focused radiation to try to just treat this one lesion, but the fact that it's close to the pericardium may be an issue. I'm a little reluctant to go ahead and do chemotherapy with this woman. My other hormonal option would be to go to exemestane and everolimus. So we we're kind of trying to decide what to do. She physically feels well. She has no symptoms referable to this at all. She continues to exercise. And so we're in the process of trying to decide what the best treatment is. Is she still on Luprolide? Yes, she is. Have you thought about or discussed with her having her ovaries taken out? We've talked about that as well, and she doesn't mind coming in for the Luprolite shots at all. She is a little bit overweight, so, you know, the surgery might entail some recovery. So she's comfortable with just staying on the Luprolite. So, Adam, what were your thoughts about her and where things might be heading? Yeah, I mean, you know, this is an indication of someone who has slowly progressive metastatic breast cancer that's ER positive, strongly ER positive, and is having, I think, what is a very typical response, some slow kind of response, then a slow progression back and forth through a number of antihormonal agents. I think that the real issue, you know, is that she has this remaining lung mass, and Pat and I were talking about this, had this been more peripheral, had it been a peripheral lung mass, not adjacent to the pericardium, not adjacent to the fissure, I think most people would have thought about taking it out to kind of 
be 100% sure this is truly still ER positive and make a clinical decision based on that. But the problem is that it's really not in a great area to operate on. And in fact, the patient herself was not too thrilled, it sounded like, about having a procedure. So, I mean, I think I like the concept of XMS and Averolimus. I think it's a very reasonable option. I think one issue that we had discussed was truly, should you try to get some more tissue now to determine whether it's truly ER positive? And if it's ER negative, then simply do maybe capecitabine instead, because the XMS and Averolimus won't work for an Correct. ER positive patient, ER negative patient. tumor, yeah. It was a little surprising today because, you know, we've been talking about this and, again, there's been no rush to make a decision. And she was pretty forthright today that she didn't want to do surgery. She was aware of the complications. Now that one surgeon has told her that there is some risk to doing it, she's not enthusiastic at all. She lives by herself. She's, you know, her sole support. And so to try to do the surgery, if it entailed any kind of compromise that was longer lasting, would really be devastating for her. So this case brings up a couple of teaching points I want to ask Adam to comment on. First, the issue of longer-term adjuvant endocrine therapy. This lady had a delayed relapse. She had therapy stop at five years. We've seen two big studies, the Adam and Atlas trials now presented over the past year. Where are we today, Adam, in terms of prolonged endocrine therapy and also predictors of late response? So to answer the first question, prolonged endocrine therapy, I think that for premenopausal women right now, I believe that 10 years of tamoxifen is now the standard of care. I think that it's always a risk-benefit. Clearly, if someone comes in with a one-centimeter node-negative cancer, and it's five years later, and she's miserable on her tamoxifen, I think I would take that into account whether I wanted to give her another five years. But I think that the average person coming in with a T2 tumor, node-positive breast cancer, that's ER-positive, I think I generally will now give 10 years of tamoxifen. I think right now, if someone's been on tamoxifen for five years and is now postmenopausal. The data is clear. They should be on aromatase inhibitor. I mean, the data from MA17 is quite clear. Where we don't have the answer yet, and hopefully we will, is B42. And that is the woman who's been on adjuvant aromatase inhibitor for five years. What should we do with her? And I think all of us, we're all over the map. You talk to 10 oncologists, you get 10 different answers. Some of us give another year or two while you wait for the data. Some of us stop. Some of us, it really depends on kind of the symptoms or side effects they've been having. If someone is doing very well on five years of endocrine therapy, be it aromatase inhibitor, and really has no bone loss, has no hypercholesterolemia, has a big tumor with a lot of nodes, I think most of us will continue her while we wait for the data to come out. The real interesting thing, though, is that there are now the beginnings of some molecular predictors, actually, of whether people do well. So there's the breast cancer index, which is, and in fact, the particular part of the breast cancer index is this HOX17B over IL17 receptor. And that ratio, H over I, is part of this molecular breast cancer index. That H over I apparently, actually in a study that was presented at San Antonio, published in Lancet Oncology very recently, and in clinical cancer research, we were involved in that particular paper, where it actually was predictive of relapse between years 5 and 10, where tests like mammoprint and oncotype, or the 21-gene assay, were not. The other thing is the PAM50 assay, which also appears to be prognostic for relapse between years 5 and 10. And so I think a lot of us are considering using those. I don't think insurance pays for them now, but I think we may potentially have predictors or at least prognosticators for relapse between years 5 and 10. And additionally, the H over I, this breast cancer index or this Theranos index, the BCI, that actually was tested in MA17. 
and it did appear to at least have some trends, although there were not huge ones, to predict whether someone would have endocrine benefit or not. So we may have some predictors on the horizon that will answer those questions, but until we do, I think we just use clinical judgment. I think that, again, premenopausal, most of us will do 10 years. Postmenopausal, on AIs for five years, that's more of a clinical judgment at this point. And I think if this woman presented today, I probably would have kept her going on the tamoxifen longer Yeah. with her clinical features. Yep. So this lady has had a number of endocrine therapies, still has a little bit more left, but I'm curious where things are in terms of improving on therapy of patients with ER-positive disease. Anything new and exciting, Adam? We saw a paper last year on a CDK Yeah, that truly, I think, is the next big thing. I think the two major trends right now, well, there's three or four major trends, but one is using mTOR inhibitors like Averolimus with drugs other than exemestane. So there's things with fulvestrin, with tamoxifen, with other aromatase inhibitors. That's clearly coming down the pike, both in the metastatic and the adjuvant setting. There's a big adjuvant trial that's started now. The second thing is PI3 kinase inhibitors. Actually, there's a number of companies in pharma that are developing PI3 kinase inhibitors, particularly for the instance where someone has progressed through an mTOR inhibitor. So there's a number of trials like that. But I would say the most exciting thing right now are the CDK4-6 inhibitors. And palbociclib, I think, is the most advanced of those. I believe it's now on fast-track approval from the FDA based on the phase two trial that they've done. There clearly are some now phase three trials that are ongoing with palbociclib, as well as some other CDK4 inhibitors that other pharma has developed. And I think that if that data really does hold up clinically, I think that will be a next major advance in this field. So the last thing I want to ask you about with relationship to this lady is you mentioned Everolimus and exemestane. And I'm curious sort of what's new in that regard. First, I'm just kind of curious, Pat, what your experience has been with that combination, particularly in terms of toxicity. The toxicity I've seen has been across the board. I've had a few people with rash that's really not been a major issue. The mucositis, if you lower the dose, it really hasn't been a major issue. My preference has been to start people off with five milligrams and then to escalate them rather than doing it the other way around. And Dr. Brofsky and I have talked to a little different opinion on that. And I've seen people who have had kind of acute toxicity in terms of primarily GI toxicity, diarrhea, and abdominal pain. And it seems to come on extremely suddenly. And that's caused me to stop the medication in a few people. I've not really seen the pulmonary toxicity be an issue in treating these patients. It's always interesting to ask people who are actually using these drugs what their experience is. Adam, I haven't heard about abdominal problems. Have you seen that? No, most of mine are really bad stomatitis. I think, you know, and that happens suddenly. I mean, literally they'll be on it and then like a week into it, they'll suddenly get really bad stomatitis to the point they can't eat or take PO. And I think that Unlike Pat, what I tend to do is I will start them on 10, but go to 10 every other day. That's one option if they get bad stomatitis after stopping it for a few days. Or a lot of my colleagues around the country, and I've just started doing this, has really started using a steroid mouthwash as prophylaxis. I started a few days before and then continue it at least for the first month. And again, there's many compositions of the steroid mouthwash. Some people grind up a couple of tablets of Decadron, you know, and some saline. Other people actually have it compounded. There's actually a clinical trial going on right now. I think the CLHB, or now the Alliance, has a trial where they're doing this. And so, you know, there's all sorts of ways to manage the toxicity. But my major issue that I've seen, and I see some rash too, I think we were talking about rash, is pretty much the stomatitis. So again, Pat, any comments on this patient's sort of life situation and how she's been dealing with what's going on? 
She has been able, I think, to just take this step by step ever since her diagnosis. And she really has decided that she doesn't want to proceed with surgery. We talked today about maybe trying to proceed with the biopsy just to try to get some more tissue to see what we're dealing with. Has this tumor changed its characteristics? We talked a little bit about just an FNA versus maybe a core to save some more tissue for possible genomic markers, if not now, then in the future. But she's been very impressive in that she's been able to accept the fact that she's living with this disease and that we're trying to control it. And she's actually been able to accept the different, you know, knowing that there are different options without maybe a definitive way to go and be able to deal with that uncertainty and participate in those decisions. Any observations, Adam, on her as a person? She looked great. I mean, you know, she's definitely, you know, living her life, taking a very active role in her treatment. Pat and I had discussed before we went in about the whole concept of whether to remove the lung mass or not. And she was fairly emphatic, I think, at this visit where she really didn't want it done. 